finish up Genesis chapter 21 this morning. And at the end of the service, we'll have a time of coming to the Lord's table to remember what Christ has done for us and oh, his abundant grace toward us. He's so good to us. So Genesis chapter 21, we're going to pick up in verse 22 this morning. So those of you who are able to stand, if you'll stand, we'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Pekol, the commander, that's really how you pronounce his name, Pekol, so I looked it up. The commander of his army spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, that you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. And then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not... Tell me, nor have I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and he gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And then Abimelech asked Abraham, What what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And Abraham said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called this place Beersheba. Because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech arose with with Pekol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take, Lord, your holy word this morning. And Lord, we know that your word is living and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. Piercing even to the division, the joint and the marrow and the soul and the spirit, Lord. Take it and use it, Lord, to accomplish your purposes in us, Lord. Transform us into your image. Lord, we also know that there are those who come this morning, Lord, who, who don't yet know you. Lord, would you take your word? And you would cause them, Lord, to have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, who they are in light of your holiness and, Lord, the solution that you have provided in Christ. We also pray, Lord, for those who come, Lord, this morning with heavy hearts, Lord, and grieving and they're troubled. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to them. We thank you that you are the God who is never present help in time of need. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. You know, let's go ahead and uh, throw up those slides now before I go too far here. I don't think I even brought my pointer out, which is okay. We'll just point with a pen. Um, I just want to set the scene this morning for where we're at. Can you, can you see... Uh, there's Shechem and Bethel, Bethel and Jerusalem, Hebron and Beersheba. That's the setting of our text this morning. Is there in Beersheba? Uh, it's in the what they call the Negev region. It's the desert in the south. Um, 
You remember that when Ishmael in the last chapter was driven away, that they went through Beersheba and down into the Sinai region, him and his mom, Hagar. Let's go to the next slide. That gives you a little bit better one. Here's Beersheba right here. And there's Gerar. That's where we were at in chapter, um, uh, chapter 20 when we first met Abimelech, the king of Gerar. So he's going to come down in our text today, and he's going to, it's about 25 miles from Gerar down to Beersheba. Let's go to the next slide. That's a, tam- that's a tamarisk tree. At the end of our chapter, we're going to see that Abraham plants one of these. Now, that's what they look like most commonly in the Middle East, this tamarisk tree. This is next picture. This is what we're accustomed to. Let's go to the next one. We know them out here as salt cedars. You heard that term before, salt cedars? You see them oftentimes, they grow by... Um, uh, places where there's runoff, where there's go out here to the back, and you're going to see some out here. They get some, kind of a pink, uh, uh, pink uh, blooms on them, but they they're called salt cedars because they kind of emit uh, a little bit of a salt onto the leaves. They they suck up every bit of water that you can imagine, you know, everywhere near them. They are they are uh, hard on the terrain. They are invasive. We'll go to the last slide. This is a picture of modern day. Beersheba. Founded pretty much when Abraham was there, when he dug the well. And today it is the eighth largest city in Israel. It's about a little over 200,000 people. So just to give you an idea of where we're at today. So with that. So, so we come to this passage this morning. And I don't know about you, but on the surface, at least to me, it seems like it's kind of out of place. You know, it it comes on at the end of chapter 21, it comes on the heels of celebration and sorrow, right? If you were here last week, you know, we saw the celebration because the promised son is born, the one that God had promised to Abraham and and Sarah and and 100 years old and she's 90 and Isaac is born. There's this great celebration and another celebration when he's weaned and, and then there's sorrow when Ishmael scoffs at young Isaac, and he's driven, him and Hagar are driven away, and they depart from Abraham and from the source of blessing. In other words, they've rejected the promised child, and they've rejected the promised giver who is God. It's a, it's a horrible situation. And then it seems like we have this little addendum to the chapter here that Moses just kind of throws this little insignificant event to kind of maybe fill in a gap that deals with this peace treaty between Abraham and Abimelech and, you know, some issue about a well that was dug and who has rights to it. And, but God is not haphazard about his word. He's not flipping. He's not willy-nilly with the, his word. Paul, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, He says, all Scripture, yes, even the section we're in this morning, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God has a purpose for this section. It might seem out of place to us. It might just seem to be gap filler material or maybe the, you know, the... uh, the publisher had so many words he expected for Moses to meet, and, and he had to hit that deadline, and, but that's not the case at all. 
So the big picture of what's taking place in this section is the continued fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. You remember that God has, from the very beginning, when we're introduced to Abraham at the end of chapter 11 and in chapter, early in chapter 12, he has made promises, huge promises to Abraham. He's promised to make him a great nation. And finally, in this chapter at the beginning, we see that happening. Abraham and Sarah have tried on their own to become a great nation with the Hagar method, but it's failed. And God has given them a child in their old age, a miraculous birth of Isaac. And so God is fulfilling his promise. But he also promised God, I'm sorry, God almost promised Abraham a land. But at this point, Abraham doesn't possess any land. He's a sojourner. He's a pilgrim. He's a guest, if you will, in this land. This, he's a foreigner. But by the end of this chapter, Abraham will at least own a well. And he begins to put down roots. We don't see him packing up anymore at the end of this chapter. We don't see him rolling his tent back up and moving from place to place like we've seen throughout the rest of the, uh, of the time we've watched Abraham from chapter 12 up until now. And so the big picture of the passage, we, we see God's continued fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. That's how it fits into this text. But in the details, we're going to see some very practical principles of what it looks like to build Christ-honoring relationships. And so, let's jump into our text. About five years now have passed since Abraham's last encounter with Abimelech, because you remember at that point, Sarah was not even yet pregnant. Isaac was not yet born. So he's been born, he's been weaned, so we're looking at probably about five years since his last encounter with Abimelech. And we remember that encounter, don't we? Where Abraham lied, and Abraham and Sarah lied. He says, that's my sister, because he didn't want Abimelech to kill him. And she got taken into Abimelech's harem, and you remember the whole story. And so one day, Abimelech and his top general, Picol, they show up. I keep, every time I say that, I want to do that Roscoe P. Coltrane thing, Picol. But I, I'm sorry, it's just, it's just in my brain. I just need to confess it right now. It, it is, it, I'm struggle, I'm, 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 the, the flesh is weak. So his top, Abimelech the king and his top general, uh, commander of the joint chiefs of staff. He shows up at Abraham's tent in verse 22, and it came to pass at that time, Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Oh, wouldn't, wouldn't that, that unbelievers would say that about you and I, that God is with you in all that you do because they look at us and they, they see our character, they, they see our integrity, they, they see our marriages and they see our families or they just see the, and not that, you know, we're the Von Trapp family, you know, and the sound of music and all the kids line up, you know, when you, when you blow the whistle. I'm not talking about that and his obedience, but just the way that we relate to one another, that they would be able to say that our our co-workers, our employers, because of the work ethic that we have, 
God is with you in all that you do, that they would see something different about us. He says, so they show up, and he says, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity, with my grandchildren, and on down the line. But according to the kindness that I have done to you, Abraham, I've been kind to you. You're a sojourner in the land that is not yours. And I have been kind to you. And you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And that word dwelt there is the word sojourn. In the land in which you've been a guest. I have dealt kindly with you, Abraham. And so, you notice from these two verses that Abimelech places himself in a very strong and a very strategic position in this matter with Abraham that he's coming to talk to him about. He's brought his top military general, and that's got to be a little bit intimidating, right? I mean, the guy shows up, he's in full uniform, and he's the commander, he's your top general. And now you got the king. So you got the two big honchos from the Philistine Empire who are standing outside your tent. That's got to be a little intimidating. And he reminds Abraham here in the text that you're this is the land in which you dwell. You're a sojourner. You're just here on a guest visa, Abraham. This isn't your land. This is my land. And all of this, is a, it's a statement of power that Abimelech is making. It's a show of strength by the king. I mean, you think about it. He's, he's obviously a little concerned about Abraham. Abraham is increasing in strength and in, and in power. And he notices that. He notices that God is with him in all that he does. God's favor is upon him. And, and no doubt that was evident in many ways. Certainly, it was, Abimelech had certainly had heard that I, Abraham and Sarah had been blessed with this child in their old age. This miraculous birth of Isaac when Abraham is 90 and Sarah is, I'm sorry, Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. Uh, that news had probably traveled far and wide about the promised child and this miraculous birth. And so they knew that God's favor was upon Abraham. But I'm sure he also noticed as he watched and he saw Abraham's herds are multiplying. The amount of people in Abraham's employment, those who are watching over his flocks, his livestock, it keeps growing. And dozens of tents are beginning to spring up in his sprawling encampment. Abraham is a force to be reckoned with. This is no little small nomad anymore, you know, who's just wandering around and trying to eke out an existence. No, this is Abraham. He's powerful. And so he wants to enter into a covenant with Abraham. A kind of a mutual non-aggression treaty. He wants there to be peace between them. I mean, because you can imagine with Abraham's growing encampment and his livestock and here in the Philistine land that he's dwelling in as a sojourner, as a guest, that there would be a great potential for conflict over land use and water rights for their flocks. Remember like Abraham and Lot had a few chapters ago. And so he wants to enter into this covenant with, with Abraham. He wants there to be peace between them. But he's also concerned 
because of his past history with Abraham. Did you notice what he says there in verse 23? He says, now therefore, Abraham, he says, swear to me me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. That kind of probably stung a little bit, didn't it, for Abraham to hear that. You're bringing up my past. You're bringing up what happened with you and me five years ago back in chapter 20. Do not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity so there can be peace between us. So Abimelech doesn't trust Abraham. He wants to enter into a covenant with him, a treaty, a pact with him, that there be peace between them. But Abraham, I need to know that you're not going to do what you did the last time we met, where you lied to me. You remember Abraham's lies? Almost got Abimelech killed. If he had, you remember what God said to Abimelech? You're a dead man if you touch her. Speaking of Sarah. He put Abimelech because of his lies that she's my sister, which was a half-truth and a full lie. Put Abimelech in a very precarious place with the Lord. And you remember that God did strike Abimelech and his household with some disease that we don't know what it was that resulted in infertility. They were not able to have any children in the household. He, he remember at the end of the whole thing, Abraham had to come and pray for Abimelech and his household. And after that, Abimelech's household began to have children. And so he's got some past with Abraham here that's made things a little tense. And so this is a rebuke of Abraham's past actions. Yet, here's this unbeliever, Abimelech, and he's willing to let bygones be bygones. He's, he's willing to move forward in their relationship if Abraham can assure him that he won't deal falsely with him. You won't do like you did back in chapter 20, Abraham. Are you a changed man, Abraham? Well, how does Abraham respond to the rebuke and to the offer of peace? Verse 24, and Abraham said, I will swear. In other words, I I will not deal falsely with you. And that's a confession. He doesn't doesn't balk. He said, well, you know, hey, she really was my sister. He doesn't make a bunch of excuses. He says, I will swear, meaning I own this. I did sin against you. I confess that. And I'm a changed man. And in this, we're reminded that Christ-honoring relationships are built on trust. Christ-honoring relationships are built on mutual trust with one another. Abraham had destroyed that trust in their previous encounter by his lies, by his dishonesty. But here's the good news. Trust can be rebuilt. How is it rebuilt? You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 4.25? He says, put away lying and let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Deal truthfully, Abraham, with Abimelech. Let's don't play these games anymore. Let's Let's don't tell these lies to protect yourself, to make yourself look better. And if you're one of God's people, then we're to manifest God's nature. If we're one of God's people, then we have been, church, listen, we have been born again. 
not of flesh and blood, not to enter into our mother's womb a second time and to be born again. We've been born from above, Jesus said in John chapter 3. We've been born of God, a spiritual rebirth, new birth. And that means that when we've been born again, when Christ does that work in the heart of a believer, that, that we, get, we get a new mind. It's not perfect yet. It's being sanctified. It's being transformed. But it's a, it's a new heart. It's a new mind. It's a new heart. It's new desires. It's, it's new affections. You remember Paul said this way. He said, old things pass away, right? Behold, all things become new. New mind. New heart, new desires, new affections, a new way of living in relationship to God and with others. There should be this change that is evident in our lives because God is transforming us into the image of Christ. In other words, what should happen as a result of the new birth is that we should be looking more and more like Christ as the days go on. And of course, ultimately, the great culmination of that is when we leave this body and we're in heaven. But there should be a radical change in us. You see, the old man, we were in bondage to sin, and we were of our father, the devil. And the devil is characterized as being a liar. And the truth is not in him. You remember, he, he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. That's his nature. That was our nature. But if we're in Christ and we've had a new birth, then we've got a new nature. And that new nature is characterized by being Christ-like. He is the way, the what? Truth, the life. See, he is a God of truth. Healthy relationships, church, are built. Christ-honoring relationships are, are, are built on truth, honesty, integrity. You, you won't have a good relationship if it's not built upon that. I mean, that just, that just, that just has some, so many practical implications. I mean, that has a even in our mortgages. Our relationship with the bank or the company that, that holds our mortgage Our relationship with them is built upon the fact that we expect that they're going to be people of integrity and they're only going to charge us what we agreed to pay, right? But they also expect out of us when we sign that contract, what? That we pay what we agreed to pay, right? Now, now I realize things happen and the economy falls out and we have to maybe renegotiate things, but we want to do that even in good faith and honesty and integrity. We don't want to just walk away, leave all our stuff in the home and, and not tell them that's not integrity. You want to do it right. Integrity and honesty. and Maybe you don't own a home. Maybe you just rent. But we want to keep the lease. We want to, we want to be faithful to the, to the agreement that we've made. That's what God's people do. If I've committed myself to a lease, then I stay in the lease. Whoever holds the loan on your car, you've agreed to five years or what? It's probably 15 years now. I don't know what they do on new cars. It gets more and more because the cars keep going up. But, but, but we commit ourselves to, and we want to be people of honesty, integrity, and truth. And that means with the IRS, 
springtime when it rolls around. We don't want to fudge. Oh, I want every deduction I can get. Don't get me wrong. But we got to, we we're going to give Caesar what Caesar is supposed to get. But he doesn't get any more than what he's supposed to get. But I don't want to fudge. Fudge is a really nice word for lie, isn't it? It's lying. When we purposely change things or omit things or add things that shouldn't be on there. We are not being people of truth, integrity, and honesty. And that's true, young people, even with our teachers, right? Your students, you want to be a student. If you're a believer in Christ, even if you're not a believer, there's, there's benefits in being moral. Don't cheat. You want to talk about the problems with cheating? Come talk to me. I'll tell you about that all day long and, and before I was saved. And it's bad. You don't want to do it. It, doesn't, it never ends well. There's another cheater. <laughs> in friends and families and in marriages, we want to be healthy, Christ-honoring relationships are built on truth, integrity, trust, lies, deceit, dishonesty, they, they destroy, they, they erode relationships. It grieves me to see that happen, especially among God's people. To see relationships eroded by falsehoods, by lies, by deceit, by dishonesty. But, but speaking truth, it builds relationships. It builds Christ-honoring relationships. Now, now here's the good news is that for Abraham, that though he failed in the past with Abimelech, God now gives him another chance. Isn't that great that God would do that with you and I? That he doesn't just write us off the first time that we mess up, but there's a new beginning, a new opportunity. And that's good news for us, that our past may be characterized by deceit, by, by lying, by falsehoods, but our future doesn't have to be. We don't see Abraham doing what he did in chapter 20. We don't see him doing that again. He was saved when he did that in chapter 20. He was saved when he did it in chapter 14. He's a repeat offender. He looks like you and me. But we see a man who has grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We see a man who is being sanctified. We see a man whose God's grace is abounding toward him and changing him and giving him new desires and new affections. That's what the gospel does. It, 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 it changes us into the image of Christ. And so though our past may be characterized by lies and deceit and falsehood, our, our future doesn't have to be. But it requires, listen church, it requires humility on our part. Humility to admit, that's who I am. I, I, don't you see some humility here with Abraham? Abimelech confronts him, no more falsehoods. And Abraham says, I swear. That took some humility. And what does the, what does the Scripture say? What does God do for, for the humble? He gives them what? Grace. God gives grace to them. He resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. 
And it requires dependence on Christ, not ourselves. This isn't about you and I, like, okay, I'm going to get up today and, I, and I'm going to be a truth teller. No, it's, it's getting up today and saying this, that apart from him, I can do nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't about me rolling up my sleeves and, boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can to be a truth teller. But it's about me recognizing my need and my dependence upon him because left to myself, I'll be a liar. Proverbs says this, his lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal truthfully are his delight. That's my prayer for us is that we would be a delight to the Lord in our relationships that we have by being people that are Christ-like because we tell the truth. Another thing we're reminded of is that to move forward, you have to deal with the past. Do you see that in the text? I'm trying to draw things out here. I'm not trying to inject things that aren't there. For Abimelech and Abraham... To have this peace treaty that Abimelech is, is proposing here, to have this peace treaty moving forward, the past problem couldn't be swept under the rug. They had to deal with it. It had to be confronted. Think about that in our relationship with Christ. Our separation from God, our that, that sin has caused isn't something that we can just ignore. We can't just pretend that it didn't happen. And we can't just pretend that, that we're okay with God. You see, we're sinners. We're separated from God because we have sinned against a holy God. And we have to deal with the difficult reality of who we are, that we are sinners. And we have to deal with that difficult reality as we begin our relationship with God. We, we can't come to God and, and not deal with our sin. You see, we can't even have an initial relationship with God if we don't confess that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. You see, we have to deal with the past, our past problem of sin before we can move forward. Now, so does that mean that Okay, so now we confess our sin and, and God is, you know, and, and he forgives us and we're all good now and he saves us that we never have a problem with sin again in our relationship with the Lord. If that's you, boy, write the book because I'm going to read it. But I don't think any of us are going to write that book because we still continue to sin. We're like Abraham, chapter 14, chapter 20. He's messing up over and over again. That that's, we can relate to that. And so when we do in our ongoing relationship with Christ, what does that do? It doesn't affect our standing in him, does it? Our position in him, that's secure because of what Christ has done. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those whom the Father has given, he loses none. We're secure. But what does that do with our ongoing relationship, with our fellowship with the Lord? It messes it up. And so when that happens, what do we do? Which is probably multiple times a day if you're anything like me. We practice 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We we go back to that scripture probably multiple times a day. Lord, I've blown it again. I've sinned again. And and I've got to deal with my sin problem if we're going to move forward in our relationship. I can't pretend that I didn't just sin against you in the way that I talked to my wife or the way that I talked to my children. Or maybe I gave my employer a bad day of work today and I didn't give my best. Lord, I, I sinned against you. I misrepresented you today. This is, this is a foundational truth for all healthy relationships. We can't sweep things under the rug. We can't sweep them under the rug and expect that we can move forward in building Christ-honoring relationships. We have to deal with the messes we've made. And once again, that requires humility, doesn't it? To, to own up to the fact that, you know, that's, what was it? I was looking on Webster's Dictionary here not too long ago, and it, and it said on there, you know, the, what, what's the hard, most difficult word in the English language to pronounce? You know what it is? Sorry. For, forgive me. Do you, do, you all, do you all know what I mean? how hard it is. You know, when I, when I do something or I say something to my wife that isn't, you can tell where my sin problem is, it's my mouth. And I know that it didn't honor the Lord. Do, do you know what a, what a wrestling, you know what a kind of a wrestling is to be able to go back to your wife or to go back to your husband or even worse, your parent, and, and you've, you've maybe been too hard on your kid, or maybe even you even got, got the facts wrong and you punished the kid for something they didn't do. You ever done that? Yeah. And then you got to go back and you got to say, forgive me. I got it wrong. That's hard. And church isn't hard to do that. But I have found this over the years, that the more that I do that, humble myself, admit my wrongs, the easier it becomes to go back and to do what's pleasing to the Lord. But if we're going to move forward in healthy relationships, we can't sweep the stuff in the past under the rug. We can't pretend that it didn't happen. We, we, We have to take ownership of it. Abraham had to take ownership of his past failures. And notice also, someone has to make the first move. And it was Abimelech, wasn't it? He made the first move. He's the one who's approaching Abraham about about having this peace treaty with him. Think think about any strained relationships that you might have in your life, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with another church member, maybe it's with your kids, or maybe it's siblings with one another, or maybe it's some of the young people with your parents. They won't improve by pretending that the problem's not there. Someone has to take, someone has to make the first move. Will you be the one who picks up the phone? Will you be the one who takes the initiative to set up a meeting to be reconciled with that person? 
Will you be the one who goes in to your spouse and says, hey, things aren't good between us. There's friction. There's tension. I'd like to resolve this. I want to please the Lord. Somebody's got to make, take the, make the first move. And isn't that the example that we have with Christ? That he took the initiative in our relationship with him, that we were separated from him, and, and, and were we going to take the initiative? What does Scripture say? No, there are none who seek God. You and I were not going to ever take the initiative to be at peace with him. So what does he do? He demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were sinners, he goes to the cross. He says, I'm going to take the first move in reconciling this relationship that we're separated in because of your sin. And he didn't even done he hadn't done anything wrong, had he? And he took the first move. Might I also add that peacemaking, that reconciliation takes an incredible amount of courage. The fear of man is high in us. And it takes a lot of courage because you never know how the other person is going to respond, do we? Bimelech, he didn't have a clue how Abraham, I mean, he's coming, he wants to make a peace treaty, but he doesn't know. He said, I'm going to call him out. You know, he's dealt, he, I don't want any more of this falsehood that's been characterized by our past relationship. But he doesn't know how Abraham's going to respond to this. Is he going to deny that he lied in the past? Is he going to say, that's it, man. I'm going to declare war on you, and I don't want peace with you. Or is he going to somehow twist the truth and say, yeah, that, it wasn't really a lie. It was a half-truth. If she was my sister, is he going to play this whole game? See, there are no guarantees. And listen, it's not about the outcome. We have no control whatsoever on how it's going to turn out, do we? Didn't Paul say, he says, as much as depends upon you, seek to be at peace with all men. He says that's our responsibility, to be Christ-like and to seek reconciliation, to seek to be at peace. But there's no guarantee. The outcome is not what matters at the end of the day. It's obedience to Christ, that I'm seeking to be at peace. I can't make people be at peace. I can't make Shannon stop treating me bad. She doesn't. She treats me better than I deserve. You can't fix the other person. And I'm not responsible for the other person in that sense of how they, how they respond. But I am responsible to the Lord for being a, one who seeks peace. And it takes courage. Well, Abraham is willing to make a treaty with, a, with Abimelech, but before it's ratified, there's this real and immediate problem over water rights that needs to be addressed. Notice what it says in verse 25, and Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized, and that word there, seized, means that they've taken by force someone else's property, Abraham's property. This is a well that he had dug, and Abimelech's servants have seized it. They've taken it. Now, to you and I who are on city water, that might not seem like a big deal that Abraham's well was taken. But when you're Abraham and you're living in the desert in the Negev, 
No water means it's not good for your animals and it's not good for your survival. I remember when we lived in North Edwards and we were on well and at least more than once the 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 well got it went it went down for one reason or another and we had to go into you know into town to haul water in for several days at a time. Listen, it's a big deal when you don't have well water. This was huge. This was no small thing. Well, how does Abimelech respond? Verse 26, he says, I do not know who has done this thing. You, you, didn't, this is, you didn't tell me, nor I had heard of it until today. He says, Abraham, I'm innocent. This, this is the first I've heard of this well issue. Well, Abraham takes him at his word, but he wants to make sure it doesn't happen again. So he inserts this extra clause into their covenant arrangement there in verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, he gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And, and, and you know, the idea there, as we talked about covenants before, is with those sheep and oxen, what they typically practiced was that they would take them and they would cut those animals and, and they, would, they would slaughter them, cut them in half, lay them open like this, one half here, one half here, blood, it's a mess. And then the two people that are making the treaty together would walk down the middle of that and signifying that what, if we break, if either one of us breaks this covenant, what happened to these animals should happen to us. And so it was a huge thing. It was no small thing. This wasn't just about some sheep and some oxen, but this is about bloodshed. This is about cutting a covenant. It was a huge ordeal. And so they made a covenant. And Abraham also set seven ewe lambs, or seven adult female lambs, of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, he says, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And Abraham said, Abimelech, I want you to take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my, be my witness that I have dug this well. So these were separate and above the other animals that they had already cut with the covenant. They were, if you will, these seven extra lambs were proof of payment, so to speak. And by Abimelech accepting these seven lambs, he was publicly recognizing that Abraham owns the well. That's his well. I've accepted the payment. That's the receipt for him. And notice also that another witness to the covenant is the very place that the treaty is signed. Verse 31, therefore, Abraham called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. Beersheba, it's got a double meaning to it that the, the, the name does in Hebrew. It means the well of oath because they cut a covenant there, a non-aggression peace treaty between Abimelech and Abraham. But they also, it's also called the well of seven because that additional clause that Abraham put into the covenant agreement there that this is my well. And by taking those seven ewe lambs, you acknowledge my ownership of it. And so the very name Beersheba would testify to future generations that the well was secured by seven lambs and that an oath was made between Abraham and Abimelech to live at peace. Can I mention one other thing about 
healthy relationships and Christ-honoring relationships and resolving conflict. Do you notice here with Abraham? He pursues peace with Abimelech, and in doing so, he absorbs the cost. He dug that well. That was his well. He dug it with his own hands, with his own sweat, or his servants did. That was his well. But now, he's given seven ewe lambs, basically, to pay, to pay the debt for the well, so to speak. But he's pursuing peace with Abimelech at his own expense, something that he didn't have to do. It was already his well. It wasn't his responsibility to pay for the well that he had already dug. And so Abraham goes above and beyond here. He didn't have to do that in his pursuit of peace. But isn't that kind of what Paul tells us to do? His response, certainly it's the response of Christ at the cross, isn't it? It was a debt that he didn't know. It was caused by your sin and my sin, but Christ went to the, went to the cross to, to pay it anyway. He says, I'm going to pay it. I'm going to take it up on myself. And in doing so, he gave us what we didn't deserve. And so too here, Abraham does with Abimelech. He didn't have to do that. But it's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 14. He says that, he says to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Abimelech and his people had done Abraham wrong. And how does he respond? Does he repay evil with evil? No, he responds Christ-like. He returns evil with good. That's Christ-honoring because that is so against our nature. When somebody does something wrong to us in relationship, what do we want to do? Get them in a chokehold, right? Grab them by the nap of the neck. That's what we want to do. Or we just don't want to have anything to do with them. We certainly don't want to pursue peace with them. Abraham had been wrong. They had taken his well. And Abraham goes above and beyond. He says, look, I'm going to pay for these things. It's my well, but I'm going to pay for it. Repaying no one evil for evil. Well, the peace treaty is signed. And the disputes over the water rights are resolved. And we see Abimelech depart. He rose with Pekol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. He's going to stay here to the end of his life. We're going to see Isaac is going to be there. Jacob won't, but Isaac will. And so he puts down roots. Why did he plant a tamarisk tree? What was the point in that? Well, you think about this. To plant any tree in the Negev region, in that desert region, it presupposes a a constant supply of water to keep that tree growing, doesn't it? Which meant that that well, he expected to produce water for years and years and years to come because of God's faithfulness to him. And it also anticipates and indicates his determination that I'm going to stay in the region. I've got a well, I planted a tree, I'm setting roots down here. And so the tree was meant to commemorate the covenant of peace that him and 
Abimelech had struck there, but it was also meant to be a lasting landmark of God's faithfulness to his promises. You have given me a son. You have promised to bless me and to make me a great nation, and I see the beginning of that, God, and I also see you beginning to give us the land. I've got a well And I've got some roots that I can set down. I don't have to go wandering around everywhere like I did before. And what was Abraham's response to God's faithfulness toward him? He says, he called on the name. He plants the tree. It doesn't become a place. He doesn't worship the tree. So don't don't get pantheism or anything into that. Don't read into it. But he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And what's interesting about this, this is the first time that Abraham refers to God by this name. This is a new name for God that he has. It's El Olam, the everlasting God. He's already called God El Yon, the most high God. We've heard to him heard him refer to God as El Shaddai, Almighty God, the omnipotent God. But now he's got a new name to use in his worship. And don't you find that too? If you're reading God's word and you're growing in your walk with the Lord, don't you find that you've always got new ways to express your worship to him because there's new facets, new aspects of his character that he continues to reveal to us as we are in the scriptures. And it just, it magnifies God and it magnifies our worship of him. He gets bigger and bigger all the time. We should be learning more and more about God so that we can better worship him. Well, with that, we're going to stop, and we're going to go to a time of communion, and we'll make it brief because I know I've gone a long time already. So I'm going to ask Eric to come up and lead us in a song, and the ushers come up and pass out the elements. 